Um, yeah, it's great, great to be with you all tonight. Um, welcome to RUF. It's good to, good to see you all tonight. That's too high. Um, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus pastor here with RUF. Um, yeah, it's great, great to be with you, RUF. We're a Christian group on campus. We want to explore how does faith intersect, interact with uh, the college experience, with your lives, with your tragedies, with your hopes, all of those things. Um, and so we do that in a bunch of different ways, through small groups, through meeting up with one, each other, one another one-on-one, and also through this, which is where we sing, we explore and study the Bible. One of the things that I'm trying to get in the hands of every student in RUF is, in the back you'll see that little book, it's called, it's a little black book, it says Seeing Jesus. Is it Seeing what is it? Yes. Seeing Jesus Together, yeah. It's a great book. It's a little book to help guide you through... Well, this is a different side story, but one of the things students often tell me is they don't know how to read their Bible. They don't feel like they're doing well reading their Bible, and this is to help you do that. It comes with a little companion. Some of you who got that need to get this little companion because I just found this in the box. <laughs> um, so it's a little guide to help you know what you're supposed to read and how you can how you can break the Bible up so you're not bogged down in First Chronicles and hating the Bible and wondering who Jesus is. So after, if you want one of these... It'll be in the back of the table at the end of the night. So get seeing Jesus together and read it with this. Um, I'll real quick, one more time, push our blessing bags. It's our way of trying to care for our community. Um, So we're going to have one more shot tonight and then next week to bring in either send a Venmo or um, Venmo money to NMSU underscore RUF or um, bring in some goods. And we will assemble those bags. And then everybody who comes and helps will get, we'll just divide them up equally. Uh, a number of bags that you can then hand out to people in need that we see around town. And we'll have a pizza party at the same time. So, good times to come. Tonight, what we are going to do is we are going to press on in our study of the, of the Minor Prophets, which are a piece of the Bible that we don't read very often, and we're going to read one that you've probably read the least of all, <laughs> the book of Nahum. Anybody read Nahum before? A couple of you, maybe. Some of you maybe have. Some of you maybe haven't. That's fine. We skip over this book a lot, and we wonder, what am I supposed to do with this book? Um, It's only a few pages, three chapters, and this book pushes us to ask, does the Bible actually have anything to say to my life? Because it sure feels like not. Uh, This book can feel really far away, culturally, historically, all the things that are happening here. You're just wondering, like, this can't possibly apply and speak to my life. But we trust that the Bible is and always has been God speaking to us. And so that that is still happening now. That when we read even a little book like Nahum, it is God speaking to us. And it has relevance in our lives. And tonight, we're going to study that the book of Nahum shows us that God will act against his people's enemies. That's the big thing we see tonight. God will act against his people's enemies. And And in that is a really sweet, comforting message of hope. And comfort. Um, and so we're going to look at Israel's threat and God's action. We're going to look at the, our threat and God's action. And we're going to look at how we respond. So Israel's threat and God's action. Our threat and God's action and how we respond. I'm going to read this. You should have the piece of paper on your handout. Um, and then also if you have questions or inter- want to interact with me afterwards, you can shoot me a text. My phone number is on there. And I will interact with your questions Uh anonymously after this. So um, I'm going to read all of chapter 1, and we're going to look at this. So if you have a handout or a Bible, Nahum chapter 1. We'll get to the map in the back in a second. 
This is God's word. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will, be, will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble for those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries that will pursue his en- and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are, as full, and though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. And the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image I will make your grave, for you you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains of the feet of him... Sorry, behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace... Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let me pray. Lord in heaven, as we read this, it seems like a long ways away and far off, but Lord, it is a good word because we know it comes from you. Help us to see that now as we study it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I told you this piece of, this book, when I first read it, I was like, man, how does this apply? (laughs) This is a real challenge. This is amazing because what is going on in this book actually applies so well to what many of you are walking through. A couple of y'all, many of you that I know have talked with are in hard stuff and this, this book speaks so well to it. So I'm gonna, we're gonna try and uncover this. So the first thing I want us to see here is Israel's, sorry, Israel's threat and God's action. Israel's threat and God's action. So we're gonna start at verse one. Verse one says, an oracle concerning Nineveh the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. All right, so verse 1, it says, an oracle concerning Nineveh. And you remember, from a couple of weeks ago, we were studying the book of Jonah, and Jonah also dealt with Nineveh. Nineveh played a major part in that. And in that, Nineveh was a picture of God's grace or his undeserved mercy towards people who cannot deserve it. Uh, Nineveh repented of their sin, and so God spared the destruction, the disaster that he brought against them. That happened in about 800 B.C., 800 years before Jesus Christ uh, walked on this earth. Nahum happens about 180 to 200 years later. 
in, uh, in, in ancient Near East history. And Nineveh is back on the scene again, but this time they are not here in a good way. They have relapsed back into uh, the, the sin, the cruelty that they, uh, that, that they had originally had. In fact, it's gotten worse. And to understand what's going on here, why Nahum is important, we have to walk a mile in the shoes of an ancient Israelite. All right. So to an ancient Israelite, Nineveh both represented and really was the pinnacle of threat. Nineveh was a threat. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was a large, was the superpower of the, the you know, the, the geopolitical forces at the day that, of Israel's day. And Nineveh was the capital. And so from about 800 BC to 600 BC, Assyria and therefore Nineveh was the reigning power in the world, in, in the area that's called the Fertile Crescent. You can see on here this purple line or purple mass is called the Fertile Crescent, and Assyria ruled all of it. Uh, you can see where you can see Nineveh, it's really small, but they're like kind of right in the middle there, and then they controlled all the way down into Egypt on there. And not only was that, not only was that, but Assyrian Empire was known throughout the region as one of the cruelest and most domineering empires that had ever existed up to date. They were cruel and destructive. And when they invaded an area, which they often did, they were pressing into all these areas, up into Asia, out, west, out east, and then into, uh, into Israel. When they invaded, it meant physical death and cultural annihilation. When the Assyrians attacked, they left no prisoners. Their techniques were unheard of, and they developed new techniques of warfare that were just unparalleled for their day. Psychological warfare, just absolute cruel propaganda that, and, and psychological warfare. They had new siege techniques so that they could attack a city that previously maybe could have withstood a siege. When the Assyrians attacked, you could not stand up to it. Uh, they had chariots. They had military weaponry that was on another level that that people could not, that you know, armies could not stand. So they were unstoppable militarily. When they would attack, they would destroy whole cities. Uh, they would just, they would, I mean, essentially rape all the women, kill all the men, kill most of the babies, and drag people into captivity. Uh, you can read in chapter three. I, it's very graphic what they would do. Um, very graphic. And not only did they destroy in death, but they sought to annihilate a person's culture. They would, they, if they, 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 not, they sought total cultural annihilation. Their goal was beyond just colonization. They wanted to that group that they invaded to cease to exist as a people. And so they would remove any survivors from their homeland and spread them out into the rest of their area so that people would say, we don't know who we are anymore. We do not exist as a people, as a culture, as a nation. They, I mean, when the Assyrians came, it was destruction. And, uh, so, and it works. You can read in 2 Kings 18, they invade the ten northern tribes of Israel. And they were so, in 722 BC, and when they attacked and invaded, they eradicated the ten northern tribes. And we, to this day, we do not know where they went. Those ten tribes are gone. They were just wiped off the face of the earth. You can read this in 2 Kings 17 through 20. So Israel, I mean Assyria is a constant threat to the people of God, to Judah and to Israel. They were a perpetual threat. And so you can imagine living in the fear of the superpower constantly launching the possibility of an annihilating military campaign against you. So Nineveh was and represented death and destruction to Israelites. To drive it home a little bit more, 
we can try to imagine how Nazi Germany would have felt to a Polish Jew. That's how Nineveh felt to an Israelite. The threat of, if they come, we do not live. Our people, our culture are gone. Death, destruction, torture. And into that world, into that emotion, into that reality, Nahum writes his oracle. And the word oracle or vision in verse 1 is saying this is God speaking. These are the unique words of God has words for this situation. Nahum speaks on behalf of God concerning Nineveh. And what does God say? Verse 2 through 9, he starts to speak into this. It says... You can read it. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, avenging and wrathful, taking vengeance on his enemies, will keep his wrath for his enemies. Slow to anger, but great in power, by no means will clear the guilty. He rebukes the sea, dries up rivers, Bashan and Carmel, which are famous mountains in Israel. They wither. The mountains quake. So first, notice in going on here that the word for God here, the word for Lord, is the all caps word. You'll notice that in the text It's in all capitalized, which means in English translations, that's how we translate God's Hebrew name, Yahweh. And that's God's personal name. And it means, literally, you know how each of our names have a meaning. God's name, Yahweh, means that I am consistent or I keep my promises. It's God's personal name for for saying that I will keep my promises. It's his, his saying that I am the one who does, when I say I'm going to do something, I will follow through with it. And it's saying that I am active and intimately involved in the affairs of human beings. And so what does it say? He says, I keep my promises. I'm involved in human beings. What does he do? He's jealous. He's avenging. He's wrathful. He takes vengeance against his adversaries. And it says, and when God does this, when God is active, when he's on the move, The parts of the world that seem impregnable, things that don't move, like mountains and oceans, even they can't stand up to his movement. Verse 4, the sea. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel. These are mountains that are well known. They quake, they wither. The bloom of Lebanon. Lebanon was this eternally green area. Even it can't stand up to it. Mountains. Mountains don't move. They didn't have the ability to, you know, we don't move mountains easily, but they certainly couldn't move a mountain. But it says the mountains melt. The earth heaves before him. So what, what Nahum is showing right off the bat is he says that God is in total control and he is the main character. In the, in the story of geopolitics, God is the protagonist. He's the main actor. Assyria, boy, they think they're the big one. When Assyria attacks, nobody can stand up to them. Nahum is saying, ah, 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 you know nothing of wrath. You know nothing of power. You know nothing of destructive capability. But then when the God of the Bible acts, that is all sourced in God. He says in verse 9, you, you have a plan? Humans make a plan? What do you plot against this God who is active He makes a complete end, so much so that you do not get up a second time. He uses this powerful image. He says, when God acts, anyone who opposes him is like a drunkard who can only stagger. The image here is of of a bar fight, you know, and this drunk fool walks up to an MMA fighter and puts up hands. The only thing that happens in that moment is somebody goes to the hospital, and it's not the MMA fighter, right? That's the image here. So, though it, and then it says in verse 12, 
Though they are full and strength of many, they will be cut down and pass away. That is, though Assyria looks so intimidating, they will be cut down. And in fact, it goes even further. Look in verse 14. The Lord, again, has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. For the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image I will make your grave, for you are vile. What's going on here? Well, (laughs) it's interesting. He's saying here, your name, that is your perpetuity, the thing that comes after you, the things that people look to, it's gone. It's eradicated. You know what also? The gods that you look to, that is the cultists. The word, you know what the word culture comes from? The religion, the cults, they're gone. So he's saying, oh, you who seek to eradicate and annihilate cultures, I'll eradicate you. That's, who I'm, that's what I'm capable of. That is what I will do. God, the nation that annihilates cultures, God is saying, I will culturally annihilate. That is what I am, that is what I am doing to the nation that is a threat to my people, Israel. So here, what is this? What's happening here? Nahum shows here that God is in total control of human affairs, human history, and God will destroy anyone who threatens his people. God says, I have made my promises to the people of Israel. They are mine. And the greatest cultural threat, military threat that could come and harm them has nothing against me. I will eradicate them. And that's exactly what happened. In 612 BC, the Babylonian Empire comes and destroys the Assyrian Empire, and it's gone. We're not even sure we know where Nineveh, we think we know where Nineveh is today. It's, it was completely removed, nothing left. And this is a consistent theme across the minor prophets that God is in control of human history. That he uses foreign nations for his purposes, sometimes to discipline his people, but he always rules and reigns over them. God is in control, the minor prophets say. The God of the Bible, he's in, he, he, he is sovereign, he is, he is the king over kings. And to so, sum up this first point, Nineveh is the major cultural, theological, and political threat to Israel. Cultural death No, sorry, cruel death and cultural annihilation. It's scary. And yet Nahum comes in and says, he tells Israel and Assyria that God is actually the one in control and that he will finally punish Assyria. Now, that's that's what this book means to the Ninevites. How do we begin to see how this applies to our world, to what our experience is now? So if there's the Nineveh was their threat and God's action, let's look at our threat and God's action. If our challenge, our threat in God, how does this apply to us? It's a challenging question to ask because we feel so much distance, so much separation. We're not threatened by a place called Nineveh in Iraq today. We're not threatened, you know, so what does this mean today? Well, let's first look at what's the wrong way to apply this text. First, it's wrong. It, Nahum does not mean, it's, in, it's illegitimate for us to say, to apply this to another modern, you know, nation state today. And to say, well, Russia is a political threat and therefore God will destroy Russia. That's not what Nahum is talking about here. Uh, It's wrong also to say, well, my professor is a threat to my career ambitions, and so Nahum is saying that God's going to protect me from my professor or from the bully or from my roommate or something like that. Why? Because God is not in a covenant relationship, that covenantal protecting relationship with America. God is not in a covenantal relationship with you in the sense of your schoolwork or any of those things. But God is in a covenant relationship with you who are in Christ. And God does offer that covenantal protection, that 
divine warrior king protection that he offered Israel as it pertains to our salvation. The key to understanding this text comes in verses 2 through 8, where we saw that God, Yahweh, the Lord, is a promise-keeping or a covenant-keeping divine warrior against all evil. He keeps his promises in fighting for his people against evil. The verses, these verses show God as the main character in a battle against evil and his people's enemies. And Nahum shows us that it is a God who fights for his people. And this is the key to interpreting this prophecy. That is, what is literal in the Old Testament points to what is spiritual in the New Testament. It's still real in the Old Testament, but what is literally true, Nineveh is a real political threat to Israel, is, 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 is applies to and points to what is spiritual in the New Testament. So what is a political real threat in the Old Testament is a spiritual threat in the New Testament. That is to us. So what Nineveh, what Nineveh was to Israel, what was to Israel is what is spiritual to us. And so what does the Bible say is our greatest threat? Well, it's evil forces. It's Satan. It's the power of sin. It's the rulers and authorities, as Paul says in Ephesians. It's the kingdom of the power of the air, as he tells us in Colossians and Ephesians. It's, as Revelation describes, Babylon, the realm of Satan, which seeks to destroy, annihilate, kill the people of God. These are spiritual forces which seek to destroy you and destroy the church, forces that want to annihilate the church and anyone who is a member of it. This is Satan, and his main weapon has been and always will be sin. Our sin. It's my sin. He says, I can even turn them against their own selves, and then, God, and then, and then they will be destroyed. It is sin that Satan used to tempt Adam and Eve to into and ultimately lead into their death. So if Israel feared the physical death and the cultural annihilation of Nineveh, we fear the physical death and the spiritual annihilation that comes from sin. And so the good news is here that what Israel, God was to Israel in their political danger, God is to us in our spiritual endangerment. That God, verses 2 through 8 are still true. That God is the active divine warrior king who fights against our enemies, even our own sin, who fights against evil forces who want you to die. And there's no better picture of this divine warrior king who comes to destroy evil forces than Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate warrior king. If you want to know what Jesus is, you can read verses 2 through 8. He is the avenging God who avenges in wrath, who takes vengeance on it. Everything that happens on here is what Jesus did on the cross, where he comes and fights the final battle against evil forces. No better picture of this than Jesus. Listen to what 1 Corinthians says. This is Paul reflecting on what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection. He says, Then comes the end, when Christ delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father and destroys every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And skipping forward, Paul says, death will be swallowed in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? At the end of Nahum 3, Nahum taunts Assyria and says, you've got nothing on God. 
At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul looks death in the face, spiritual death, and says, you have nothing on the Christian because Jesus is alive. That's what's happening in Nahum is, is that it's, it's saying that the character of God is consistent. And so the greatest threat that you and I face, the power of sin which brings death, is no threat to those who are in Christ. Jesus, the God-man, the warrior king, destroys the greatest threat to his people, death and the power of sin. So what Nahum prophesied to Israel still applies to you and to me in an ultimate sense that when we are in Christ, yes, we may die physically, but we will never die. We will never be annihilated because Christ is risen and he will come and bring us to life. He will bring life again. Everything that is true in verses 2 and 8 here in Nahum is true because it's most clearly seen in Jesus. Which means that verse 7 and 8 are incredible hope and comfort for those of us who are in Christ. Look at verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end to the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Do you see how active God is? The lives of those who are his own, he is good. He is a refuge. A refuge is a very physical place of though this Assyrian army may swarm against us, he is the place that we can turn to. But against those who are against him, he will overwhelm and destroy And so we know that Jesus, he's the refuge from the threat of death. He is the scourge, and he's a scourge to the threat of death because of his resurrection. He looked death in the eye and says, what do you have? You can't do anything to me. And this is a tremendous source of comfort and of hope to all of us. Y'all, we live in a highly anxious time. I've been reading studies about students right now, and anxiety is at an all-time high. I talk to each one of you, and you all have something that you are deeply anxious about. Everything from uh, World War III in Ukraine and Russia to anxiety about social media to pressure to perform in school to get the right grades to pay off loans to anxiety about American political discussion. I mean, just it's a highly anxious age. And, and, and all of it is, ungir- is girded by what's going to happen. Are we going to be okay? It looks around and it just says, it feels like more things are just up in the air. More plates are being, like, I, I just don't, and I feel it myself. Like, the reality of my mom dying, I'm stressed about that. The reality of moving, I'm stressed about that. We all feel it in our health issues, in our relationship issues, our family pain. And Nahum shows us the full character of God. And he says that God is in total control. And he fights for you when you trust in him. And he will not let the things that we are anxious, anxious about, the things that cause us to not sleep at night, the things that make us go, am I going to be annihilated? He will not let those things finally triumph. Things like sin, things like Satan. And that's a message of comfort and of hope. Which brings us to verse 15. How do we respond? Here, Nahum is addressing Judah. He says, O Judah. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Here Nahum says, there is a message of good news, a news of peace. That even as God rises up to take action against evil, he brings good news messages to his people. 
the word gospel, you know, the old, the word gospel is an old English word that means good spell, which means good news. The gospel, the good news of God being active on his people's behalf. Rising up and says, here, coming over the mountains, are someone who brings good news, who brings news of peace, not of war, not of cultural annihilation, but, but peace. Judah need not fear Assyrian military action against them. We need not fear the power of death and Satan and sin against us because God has been, is, and will be active to defend us. And so Nahum says, keep your feasts and fulfill your vows. And to the Israelites, what that basically means is keep showing up. Keep showing up emotionally, spiritually, religiously to what God has called you to. The feasts were ceremonial times of trust and obedience before God. The vows were promises to obey God, saying, yes, even though we fear annihilation at any moment, we will keep showing up into the presence of this God, this Yahweh who we trust will sustain, protect, and, and, and keep us alive. And so this is the habits of trust and obedience in the presence of a God who we trust, we know, will sustain and protect us, though the worst may happen. Keep your feasts, keep your vows, keep showing up, for never again will the worthless, that is, those who would annihilate us, pass through us. This means for us, keep showing up, to your Bible, to your small group. Keep showing up to worship, to Sunday gatherings. To sh- keep showing up to obey and know the God who is your refuge and the scourge of your enemies. There are moments in college, there are moments in each one of your life where you look around and you say, I don't think God's going to pull through. And so I don't know if I want to show up. It's so tempting in moments of attack when we feel like the threats of death and anxiety and anything less than death will overwhelm us to quit doing the habits of faith, to quit doing the ceremonial moments and habits of obedience and trust, to quit spiritual community, to quit prayer, to quit church and say, I just don't think God will keep his promise to me. And Nahum tells his people in the presence of the Assyrian threat, he says, don't stop, keep showing up. God will follow his promises. He's never let you down. Don't stop. Do the actions. Do the habits of trust and of obedience and of hope. Be patient and wait for his deliverance. Guys, I won't lie. It's so easy to be apathetic about faith right now in college. It's so easy. There is very little that has you coming in this building tonight. Very, very little. It's so easy to fade off into midterms, into stress town, into isolation, to say, God has let me down, and so I'm not going to show up. Nahum says, don't. Keep showing up despite the threats of anxiety, despite the threats of death, despite the threats of sin. Keep showing up spiritually and physically and trust that God, who was faithful in the cross, who is faithful now, and who will be ultimately faithful when Christ comes again, trust that he will do that. So this week, in those moments where you're like, I can't do it, Go back and reread Nahum, verse 2 through 8. Remember the faithfulness of God to you. Remember that Jesus is, verses 2 through 8, who has destroyed finally the power of Satan, the power of death. Meditate on that. Meditate means to massage it into the core of who you are. 
Work it deep down into the deepest part of your heart. That this is what it means to know and follow God. The complex character who is a refuge for us and a scourge to enemy. This is Jesus that you can trust who will deliver us from all our threats, even from death. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, I pray that as we study this tonight, that you would give us trust. That's what we need more than anything. That in the moments of anxiety and fear, just like the Israelites felt, in the moments of depression, of discomfort, of hopelessness, that we would trust in you and trust in your faithfulness, most perfectly seen in the victorious work of Christ on the cross. Lord, knead that into each of the thin places in our own heart that each one of us is carrying in tonight and help us to keep showing up. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.